Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Chapter 5 of The Return of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us. And now, Chapter 5, The Plot That Failed. For a month, Tarzan was a regular and very welcome devotee at the shrine of the beautiful Countess de Caud. Often he met other members of the select little coterie that dropped in for tea of an afternoon. More often, Olga found devices that would give her an hour of Tarzan alone. For a time, she had been frightened by what Nicholas had insinuated. She had not thought of this big, young man as anything more than a friend. But with the suggestion implanted by the evil words of her brother, she had grown to speculate much upon the strange force which seemed to attract her toward the gray-eyed stranger. She did not wish to love him, nor did she wish his love. She was much younger than her husband, and without having realized it, she had been craving the haven of a friendship with one nearer her own age. Twenty is shy in exchanging confidences with forty. Tarzan was but two years her senior. He could understand her, she felt. But then he was clean and honorable and chivalrous. She was not afraid of him. That she could trust him she had felt instinctively from the very first. From a distance Rokoff had watched this growing intimacy with malicious glee. Ever since he had learned that Tarzan knew that he was a Russian spy, there had been added to his hatred for the ape-man a great fear that he would expose him. He was but waiting now until the moment was propitious for a master stroke. He wanted to rid himself forever of Tarzan, and at the same time reap an ample revenge for the humiliations and defeats that he had suffered at Tarzan's hands. Tarzan was nearer to contentment than he had been since the peace and tranquility of his jungle had been broken in upon by the advent of the marooned porter party. He enjoyed the pleasant social intercourse with Olga's friends, while the friendship which had sprung up between the fair countess and himself was a source of never-ending delight. It broke in upon and dispersed his gloomy thoughts, and served as a balm to his lacerated heart. Sometimes Darnot accompanied him on his visits to the decoud home, for he had long known both Olga and the count. Occasionally decoud dropped in, but the multitudinous affairs of his official position and the never-ending demands of politics kept him from home usually until late at night. Rokoff spied upon Tarzan almost constantly, waiting for the time that he should call at the decoud palace at night, but in this he was doomed to disappointment. On several occasions Tarzan accompanied the countess to her home after the opera, but he invariably left her at the entrance, much to the disgust of the lady's devoted brother. Finding that it seemed impossible to trap Tarzan through any voluntary act of his own, Rokoff and Polvich put their heads together to hatch a plan that would trap the ape-man in all the circumstantial evidence of a compromising position. For days they watched the papers as well as the movements of Decaud and Tarzan. At length they were rewarded. A morning paper made brief mention of a smoker that was to be given on the following evening by the German minister. Decaud's name was among those of the invited guests. If he attended, this meant that he would be absent from his home until after midnight. On the night of the banquet, Polvich waited at the curb before the residence of the German minister, where he could scan the face of each guest that arrived. He had not long to wait before Decaud descended from his car and passed him. That was enough. Polvich hastened back to his quarters, where Rokoff awaited him. There they waited until after eleven. Then Polvich took down the receiver of their telephone. He called a number. "'The apartments of Lieutenant Darnot, he asked, when he had obtained his connection. "'A message for Monsieur Tarzan, if he will be so kind as to step to the telephone.' 
For a minute there was silence. Monsieur Tarzan? Ah, yes, monsieur. This is Francois, in the service of the Countess de Caude. Possibly monsieur does poor Francois the honor to recall him. Yes? Yes, monsieur. I have a message, an urgent message from the Countess. She asks that you hasten to her at once. She is in trouble, monsieur. No, monsieur. Poor Francois does not know. Shall I tell madame that monsieur will be here shortly? Thank you, monsieur. The good God will bless you. Polvich hung up the receiver and turned to grin at Rokoff. It'll take him thirty minutes to get there. If you reach the German ministers in fifteen, the coward shall arrive at his home in about forty-five minutes. It all depends upon whether the fool will remain fifteen minutes after he finds that a trick has been played upon him. But unless I am mistaken, Olga will be loath to let him go in so short a time as that. Here is the note for de Kaud. Hasten. Polvich lost no time in reaching the German ministers. At the door he handed the note to a footman. This is for Count de Kaud. It is very urgent. You must see that it is placed in his hands at once. And he dropped a piece of silver into the willing hand of the servant. Then he returned to his quarters. A moment later de Kaud was apologizing to his host as he tore open the envelope. What he read left his face white and his hand trembling. Monsieur le Count de Caude, one who wishes to save the honor of your name takes this means to warn you that the sanctity of your home is in this minute in jeopardy. A certain man who for months has been a constant visitor there during your absence is now with your wife. If you go at once to your countess's boudoir, you will find them together. Signed, a friend. Twenty minutes after Polvich had called Tarzan, Rokoff obtained a connection with Olga's private line. Her maid answered the telephone, which was in the countess's boudoir. "'But madame has retired,' said the maid, in answer to Rokoff's request to speak with her. "'This is a very urgent message for the countess's ears alone,' replied Rokoff. "'Tell her that she must arise and slip something about her and come to the telephone. I shall call up again in five minutes.' Then he hung up his receiver. A moment later, Polvich entered. "'The Count has the message?' asked Rokoff. "'He should be on his way to his home by now,' replied Polvich. "'Good. My lady will be sitting in her boudoir, very much in negligé, about now. In a minute the faithful Jacques will escort Monsieur Tarzan into her presence without announcing him. It will take a few minutes for explanations. Olga will look very alluring in the filmy creation that is her nightdress.' and the clinging robe which but half conceals the charms that the former does not conceal at all. Olga will be surprised, but not displeased. If there is a drop of red blood in the man, the Count will break in upon a very pretty love scene in about fifteen minutes from now. I think we have planned marvelously, my dear Alexis. Let us go out and drink to the very good health of Monsieur Tarzan and some of the old, and some of the old plankons unparalleled absinthe. "'not forgetting that the Count de Caude "'is one of the best swordsmen in Paris, "'and by far the best shot in all France.' "'When Tarzan reached Olga's, "'Jacques was awaiting him at the entrance. "'This way, monsieur,' he said, "'and led the way up the broad, marble staircase. "'In another moment he had opened a door "'and, drawing aside a heavy curtain, "'obsequiously bowed Tarzan into a dimly lighted apartment. "'Then Jacques vanished.' Across the room from him, Tarzan saw Olga seated before a little desk on which stood her telephone. She was tapping impatiently upon the polished surface of the desk. She had not heard him enter. Olga, he said, what is wrong? 
she turned toward him with a little cry of alarm. "'Jean!' she cried. "'What are you doing here? Who admitted you? What does it mean?' Tarzan was thunderstruck, but in an instant he realized a part of the truth. "'Then you did not send for me, Olga?' "'Send for you at this time of night? Mon Dieu! Jean, do you think I am quite mad?' "'Francois telephoned me to come at once, "'that you were in trouble and wanted me. "'Francois? Who in the world is Francois?' "'He said that he was in your service. "'He spoke as though I should recall the fact. "'There is no one by that name in my employ. "'Someone has played a joke upon you, Jean.' "'And Olga laughed. "'I feel that it may be a most sinister joke, Olga,' he replied. "'There is more back of it than humor.' "'What do you mean? "'You do not think that—' "'Where is the Count?' he interrupted. "'At the German ambassador's. "'This is another move by your estimable brother. "'Tomorrow the Count will hear of it. "'He will question the servants. "'Everything will point to what Rokoff wishes the Count to think.' "'The scoundrel!' cried Olga. "'She had arisen and come close to Tarzan, "'where she stood looking up into his face. "'She was very frightened. "'In her eyes was an expression the hunter sees "'in those of a poor, terrified doe, "'puzzled, questioning.' She trembled, and to steady herself raised her hands to his broad shoulders. "'What shall we do, Jean?' she whispered. "'It's terrible. Tomorrow all Paris will read of it. He will see to that.' Her look, her attitude, her words were eloquent of the age-old appeal of defenseless woman to her natural protector, man. Tarzan took one of the warm little hands that lay on his breast in his own strong one. The act was quite involuntary, and almost equally so was the instinct of protection that threw a sheltering arm around the girl's shoulders. The result was electrical. Never before had he been so close to her. In startled guilt they looked suddenly into each other's eyes, and where Olga de Kalle should have been strong she was weak, for she crept closer to the man's arms and clasped her own about his neck. And Tarzan of the apes? He took the panting figure into his mighty arms and covered her hot lips with kisses. Raoul de Caud made hurried excuses to his host after he'd read the note handed him by the ambassador's butler. Never afterward could he recall the nature of the excuses he made. Everything was quite a blur to him up to the time that he stood on the threshold of his own home. Then he became very cool, moving quietly and with caution. For some inexplicable reason, Jacques had the door open before he was halfway to the steps. It did not strike him at the time as being unusual, though afterward he remarked it. Very softly he tiptoed up the stairs and along the gallery to the door of his wife's boudoir. In his hand was a heavy walking stick. In his heart, murder. Olga was the first to see him. With a horrified shriek she tore himself from Tarzan's arms, and the ape-man turned just in time to ward with his arm a terrific blow that the cow had aimed at his head. Once, twice, three times the heavy stick fell with lightning rapidity, and each blow aided in the transition of the ape-man back to the primordial. With the low guttural snarl of the bull ape, he sprang for the Frenchman. The great stick was torn from his grasp and broken in two as though it had been matchwood, to be flung aside as the now infuriated beast charged for his adversary's throat. Olga de Caud stood a horrified spectator of the terrible scene which ensued during the next brief moment. Then she sprang to where Tarzan was murdering her husband, choking the life from him, shaking him as a terrier might shake a rat. Frantically she tore at his great hands. "'Mother of God!' she cried. "'You're killing him! You're killing him! "'Oh, Jean, you're killing my husband!' "'Tarzan was deaf with rage. "'Suddenly he hurled the body to the floor "'and, placing his foot upon the upturned breast, "'raised his head. 
Then, through the palace of the Count de Cowd rang the awesome challenge of the bull-ape that has made a kill. From cellar to attic the horrid sound searched out the servants, and left them blanched and trembling. The woman in the room sank to her knees beside the body of her husband, and prayed. Slowly the red mist faded from before Tarzan's eyes. Things began to take form. He was regaining the perspective of a civilized man. His eyes fell upon the figure of the kneeling woman. Olga, he whispered. She looked up, expecting to see the maniacal light of murder in the eyes above her. Instead, she saw sorrow and contrition. "'Oh, Jean!' she cried. "'See what you have done! He was my husband! I loved him! And you have killed him!' Very gently, Tarzan raised the limp form of the Count de Coud and bore it to a couch. Then he put his ear to the man's breast. "'Some brandy, please, Olga,' he said. She brought it and together they forced it between his lips. Presently a faint gasp came from the white lips. The head turned, and DeKoud groaned. "'He will not die,' said Tarzan. "'Thank God.' "'Why did you do it, John?' she asked. "'I do not know. He struck me, and I went mad. I have seen the apes of my tribe do the same thing. I have never told you my story, Olga. It would have been better had you known it. This might not have happened. I never saw my father.' The only mother I knew was a ferocious she-ape. Until I was fifteen I'd never seen a human being. I was twenty before I saw a white man. A little more than a year ago I was a naked beast of prey in an African jungle. Do not judge me too harshly. Two years is too short a time in which to attempt to work the change in an individual that it has taken countless ages to accomplish in the white race. I do not judge at all, Jean. The fault is mine. You must go now. He must not find you here when he regains consciousness. Goodbye. It was a sorrowful Tarzan who walked with bowed head from the palace of the Count de Coud. Once outside, his thoughts took definite shape, to the end that twenty minutes later he entered a police station not far from the Rue Mall. Here he soon found one of the officers with whom he had had the encounter several weeks previous. The policeman was genuinely glad to see again the man who had so roughly handled him. After a moment of conversation, Tarzan asked if he'd ever heard of Nicholas Rokoff or Alexis Povich. "'Very often indeed, monsieur. Each has a police record, and while there is nothing charged against them now, we make it a point to know pretty well where they may be found should the occasion demand. It is only the same precaution that we take with every known criminal.' "'Why does monsieur ask?' "'They are known to me,' replied Tarzan. "'I wish to see monsieur Rokoff on a little matter of business. If you can direct me to his lodgings.' I would appreciate it. A few minutes later he bade the policeman adieu, and with a slip of paper in his pocket bearing a certain address in a semi-respectable quarter, he walked briskly toward the nearest taxi stand. Rokoff and Polvich had returned to their rooms, and they were sitting talking over the probable outcome of the evening's events. They had telephoned to the offices of two of the morning papers from which they momentarily expected representatives to hear the first report of the scandal that was to stir social Paris on the morrow. A heavy step sounded on the stairway. "'Ah, but these newspaper men are prompt,' exclaimed Rokoff, and as a knock fell upon the door of their room. "'Please enter!' The smile of welcome froze upon the Russian's face as he looked into the hard, grey eyes of his visitor. "'Name of a name!' he shouted, springing to his feet. "'What brings you here?' "'Sit down,' said Tarzan, so low that the men could barely catch the words, but in a tone that brought Rokoff to his chair— he kept Polvich in his. "'You know what has brought me here,' he continued, 
in the same low tone. "'It should be to kill you, but because you are Olga de Count's brother, I shall not do that right now. I shall give you a chance for your lives. Povich does not count much. He's merely a stupid, foolish little tool, and so I shall not kill him so long as I permit you to live. Before I leave you two alive in this room, you will have done two things. The first will be to write a full confession of your connection with tonight's plot, and sign it. The second will be to promise me upon pain of death that you will permit no word of this affair to get into the newspapers. If you do not do both, neither of you will be alive when I pass next to that doorway. Do you understand? And without waiting for a reply, make haste. There is ink before you, and paper, and a pen. Rokoff assumed a truculent air, attempting by bravado to show how little he feared Tarzan's threats. An instant later he felt the ape-man steel fingers at his throat, and Polvich, who attempted to dodge them and reach the door, was lifted completely off the floor, and hurled senseless into a corner. When Rokoff's face began to blacken, Tarzan released his hold and shoved the fellow back into his chair. After a moment of coughing, Rokoff sat sullenly glaring at the man standing opposite him. Presently Polvich came to himself, and limped painfully back to his chair at Tarzan's command. "'Now write,' said the ape-man. "'If it is necessary to handle you again, I shall not be so lenient.' Rokoff picked up a pen and commenced to write. "'See that you omit no detail, and that you mention every name,' cautioned Tarzan. Presently there was a knock at the door. "'Enter,' said Tarzan. A dapper young man came in. "'I am from the Matine.' he announced. I understand that Monsieur Rokoff has a story for me. Then you are mistaken, Monsieur, replied Tarzan. You have no story for publication, have you, my dear Nicholas? Rokoff looked up from his writing with an ugly scowl upon his face. No, he growled. I have no story for publication, now. Nor ever, my dear Nicholas. And the reporter did not see the nasty light in the ape-man's eye, but Nicholas Rokoff did. "'Nor ever,' he repeated hastily. "'It is too bad that monsieur has been troubled,' said Tarzan, turning to the newspaper man. "'I bid monsieur good evening.' And he bowed the dapper young man out of the room and closed the door in his face. An hour later Tarzan, with a rather bulky manuscript in his coat pocket, turned at the door leading from Rokoff's room. "'Were you? I should leave France,' he said. "'For sooner or later—' I shall find an excuse to kill you that will not in any way compromise your sister. We'll return to Chapter 6 right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now, Chapter 6. A Duel. Darnot was asleep when Tarzan entered their apartments after leaving Rokoff's. Tarzan did not disturb him, but the following morning he narrated the happenings of the previous evening, omitting not a single detail. What a fool I've been! he concluded. The Count and his wife were both my friends. How have I returned their friendship? Barely did I escape murdering the Count. I have cast a stigma on the name of a good woman. It is very probable that I have broken up a happy home. Do you love Olga the Count? asked Darnot. Were I not positive that she does not love me, 
I could not answer your question, Paul. But without disloyalty to her, I will tell you that I do not love her, nor does she love me. For an instant we were the victims of a sudden madness. It was not love, and it would have left us unharmed as suddenly as it had come upon us, even though Decaud had not returned. As you know, I have had little experience of women. Olga Decaud is very beautiful. That, and the dim light and the seductive surroundings and the appeal of the defenseless for protection might have been resisted by a more civilized man. But my civilization is not even skin deep. It does not go deeper than my clothes. Paris is no place for me. I will but continue to stumble into more and more serious pitfalls here. The man-made restrictions are irksome. I feel always that I am a prisoner. I cannot endure it, my friend, and so I think that I shall go back to my own jungle and lead the life that God intended that I should lead when he put me there. Do not take it so to heart, Jean, responded Darnot. You have acquitted yourself much better than most civilized men would have under similar circumstances. As to leaving Paris at this time, I rather think that Raoul de Caud may be expected to have something to say on that subject before long. Nor was Darnot mistaken. A week later on, Monsieur Flaubert was announced about eleven in the morning, as Darnot and Tarzan were breakfasting. Monsieur Flaubert was an impressively polite gentleman. With many low bows, he delivered Monsieur Le Count de Caud's challenge to Monsieur Tarzan. Would Monsieur be so very kind as to arrange to have a friend meet Monsieur Flaubert at as early an hour as convenient, that the details might be arranged to the mutual satisfaction of all concerned? Certainly. Monsieur Tarzan would be delighted to place his interest unreservedly in the hands of his friend, Lieutenant Darnot. And so it was arranged that Darnot was to call on Monsieur Flaubert to that afternoon, and the polite Monsieur Flaubert, with many bows, left them. When they were again alone, Darnot looked quizzically at Tarzan. Well, he said, now to my sins I must add murder, or else myself be killed, said Tarzan. I am progressing rapidly in the ways of my civilized brothers. What weapons shall you select? asked Darnot. Decaud is accredited with being a master with the sword and a splendid shot. I might then choose poisoned arrows at twenty paces, or spears at the same distance, laughed Tarzan. Naked pistols, Paul. He will kill you, Jean. I have no doubt of it, replied Tarzan. All must die some day. We had better make it swords, said Darnot. He will be satisfied with wounding you, and there is less danger of a mortal wound. Pistols, said Tarzan, with finality. Darnot tried to argue him out of it, but without avail. So pistols it was. Darnot returned from his conference with Monsieur Flaubert shortly after four. It is all arranged, he said. Everything is satisfactory. Tomorrow morning at daylight, there is a secluded spot on the road not far from Etamps. For some personal reason, Monsieur Flaubert preferred it. I did not demur. Good, was Tarzan's only comment. He did not refer to the matter again, even indirectly. That night he wrote several letters before he retired. After sealing and addressing them, he placed them all in an envelope addressed to Darnot. As he undressed, Darnot heard him humming a music hall ditty. The Frenchman swore under his breath. He was very unhappy, for he was positive that when the sun rose the next morning, he would look down upon a dead Tarzan. It grated upon him to see Tarzan so unconcerned. "'This is a most uncivilized hour for people to kill each other,' 
remarked the ape-man when he had been routed out of a comfortable bed in the blackness of the early morning hours. He had slept well, and so it seemed that his head scarcely touched the pillow ere his man deferentially aroused him. His remark was addressed to Darnot, who stood fully dressed in the doorway of Tarzan's bedroom. Darnot had scarcely slept at all during the night. He was nervous, and therefore inclined to be irritable. "'I presume you slept like a baby all night?' he said. Tarzan laughed. "'From your tone, Paul, I infer that you rather harbor the fact against me. I could not help it, really.' "'No, Jean, it's not that,' replied Darnot, himself smiling. "'But you take the entire matter with such infernal indifference. It's, it's exasperating.' One would think that you were going out to shoot at a target rather than to face one of the best shots in France. Tarzan shrugged his shoulders. I'm going out to expiate a great wrong, Paul. A very necessary feature of the expiation is the marksmanship of my opponent. Wherefore, then, should I be dissatisfied? Have you not yourself told me that Count de Cout is a splendid marksman? You mean that you hope to be killed? exclaimed Darnot in horror. I cannot say that I hope to be. "'but you must admit that there is little reason to believe "'that I shall not be killed.' "'Had Darnot known the thing that was in the ape-man's mind, "'that had been in his mind, "'from almost the first intimation that the cowed "'would call him to account on the field of honor, "'he would have been even more horrified than he was. "'In silence they entered Darnot's great car, "'and in similar silence they sped over the dim road "'that leads to Etamps. "'Each man was occupied with his own thoughts. "'Darnot's were very mournful.' for he was genuinely fond of Tarzan. The great friendship which had sprung up between these two men, whose lives and training had been so widely different, had but been strengthened by association, for they were both men to whom the same ideals of manhood, of personal courage, and of honor appealed with equal force. They could understand one another, and each could be proud of the friendship of the other. Tarzan of the Apes was wrapped in thoughts of the past, pleasant memories of the happier occasions of his lost jungle life. He recalled the countless boyhood hours that he had spent cross-legged upon the table in his dead father's cabin. His little brown body bent over one of the fascinating picture books from which, unaided, he had gleaned the secret of the printed language long before the sounds of human speech fell upon his ears. A smile of contentment softened his strong face as he thought of that day of days that he had had alone with Jane Porter in the heart of his primeval forest. Presently his reminiscences were broken in upon by the stopping of the car. They were at their destination. Tarzan's mind returned to the affairs of the moment. He knew that he was about to die, but there was no fear of death in him. To a denizen of the cruel jungle, death is a commonplace. The first law of nature compels them to cling tenaciously to life, to fight for it, but it does not teach them to fear death. Darnot and Tarzan were first upon the field of honor. A moment later, Decaud, Monsieur Flaubert, and a third gentleman arrived. The last was introduced to Darnot and Tarzan. He was a physician. Darnot and Monsieur Flaubert spoke together in whispers for a brief time. The Count Decaud and Tarzan stood apart at opposite sides of the field. Presently, the seconds summoned them. Darnot and Monsieur Flaubert had examined both pistols. The two men who were to face each other a moment later stood silently while Monsieur Flaubert recited the conditions they were to observe. They were to stand back to back. At a signal from Monsieur Flaubert they were to walk in opposite directions, their pistols hanging by their sides. When each had proceeded ten paces, Darnot was to give the final signal. 
Then they were to turn and fire at will until one fell, or each had expended the three shots aloud. While Monsieur Flaubert spoke, Tarzan selected a cigarette from his case and lighted it. Decaud was the personification of coolness. Was he not the best shot in France? Presently Monsieur Flaubert nodded to Darnot, and each man placed his principal in position. "'Are you quite ready, gentlemen?' asked Monsieur Flaubert. "'Quite,' replied Decaud. Tarzan nodded. Monsieur Flaubert gave the signal. He and Darnot stepped back a few paces to be out of the line of fire as the men paced slowly apart. Six. Seven. Eight. There were tears in Darnot's eyes. He loved Tarzan very much. Nine. Another pace, and the poor lieutenant gave the signal he so hated to give. To him it sounded the doom of his best friend. Quickly Decaud wheeled and fired. Tarzan gave a little start. His pistol still dangled at his side. Decaud hesitated, as though waiting to see his antagonist crumple to the ground. The Frenchman was too experienced a marksman not to know that he had scored a hit. Still, Tarzan made no move to raise his pistol. Decaud fired once more, but the attitude of the ape-man, the utter indifference that was so apparent in every line of the nonchalant ease of his giant figure, and the even unruffled puffing of his cigarette, had disconcerted the best marksman in France. This time Tarzan did not start, but again Decaud knew that he had hit. Suddenly the explanation leaped to his mind. His antagonist was coolly taking these terrible chances in the hope that he would receive no staggering wound from any of Decaud's three shots. Then he would take his own time about shooting Decaud down deliberately, coolly, and in cold blood. A little shiver ran up the Frenchman's spine. It was fiendish. "'Diabolical! What manner of creature was this that could stand complacently with two bullets in him, waiting for a third? And so Decaud took careful aim this time, but his nerve was gone. He made a clean miss. Not once had Tarzan raised his pistol hand from where it hung beside his leg. For a moment the two stood looking straight into each other's eyes. On Tarzan's face was a pathetic expression of disappointment. On Decaud's a rapidly growing expression of horror. "'Yes?' of terror. He could endure it no longer. "'Mother of God, monsieur! Shoot!' he screamed. But Tarzan would not raise his pistol. Instead, he advanced toward Decaud, and when Darnot and Monsieur Flaubert, misinterpreting his attention, would have rushed between them, he raised his left hand in a sign of remonstrance. "'Do not fear,' he said to them. "'I shall not harm him.' It was most unusual, but they halted. Tarzan advanced until he was quite close to Decaud. "'There must have been something wrong with monsieur's pistol,' he said, "'or monsieur is unstrung. "'Take mine, monsieur, and try again.' And Tarzan offered his pistol, butt foremost, to the astonished Decaud. "'Mon Dieu, monsieur!' cried the latter. "'Are you mad?' "'No, my friend,' replied Tarzan. "'but I deserve to die. "'It is the only way in which I may atone "'for the wrong I have done a very good woman. "'Take my pistol, and do as I bid.' "'It would be murder,' replied Decaud. "'But what wrong did you do my wife? "'She swore to me that—' "'I do not mean that,' said Darzan, quickly. "'You saw all the wrong that passed between us, "'but that was enough to cast a shadow upon her name, "'and to ruin the happiness of a man "'against whom I had no enmity.' The fault was all mine. 
and so I hope to die for it this morning. I am disappointed that Monsieur is not so wonderful a marchman as I had been led to believe. You say that the fault was all yours? asked Decaud, eagerly. All mine, Monsieur. Your wife is a very pure woman. She loves only you. The fault that you saw was all mine. The thing that brought me there was no fault of either the Countess de Cowd or myself. Here is a paper that will quite positively demonstrate that. And Tarzan drew from his pocket the statement Rokoff had written and signed. De Cowd took it and read it. Tarnot and Monsieur Flaubert had drawn near. They were interested spectators of this strange ending of a strange duel. None spoke until de Cowd had quite finished. Then he looked up at Tarzan. "'You are a very brave, chivalrous gentleman,' he said. "'I thank God that I did not kill you.' De Cowd was a Frenchman. Frenchmen are impulsive. He threw his arms about Tarzan and embraced him. Monsieur Flaubert embraced Darnot. There was no one to embrace the doctor. So possibly it was pique which prompted him to interfere and demand that he be permitted to dress Tarzan's wounds. "'The gentleman was hit at least once,' he said, "'possibly twice.' "'Twice,' said Tarzan. "'Once in the left shoulder, and again in the left side. "'Both flesh wounds, I think.' "'But the doctor insisted upon stretching him upon the sword "'and tinkering with him until the wounds were cleansed "'and the flow of blood checked. "'One result of the duel was that they all rode back to Paris "'together in Darnot's car, the best of friends. "'De Cowd was so relieved to have had this double assurance "'of his wife's loyalty that he felt no rancor at all toward Tarzan.' It is true that the latter had assumed much more of the fault than was rightly his, but if he lied a little he may be excused, for he lied in the service of a woman, and he lied like a gentleman. The ape-man was confined to his bed for several days. He felt that it was foolish and unnecessary, but the doctor and Darnot took the matter so to heart that he gave in to please them, although it made him laugh to think of it. "'It is droll,' he said to Darnot, "'to lie abed because of a pinprick.' Why, when Bolgani, the king gorilla, tore me almost to pieces, while I was still but a little boy, did I have a nice soft bed to lie on? No, only the damp, rotting vegetation of the jungle. Hidden beneath some friendly bush I lay for days and weeks, with only Kala to nurse me. Poor, faithful Kala, who kept the insects from my wounds and warmed off the beasts of prey. When I called for water, she brought it to me in her own mouth, the only way she knew to carry it. There was no sterilized gauze. No antiseptic bandage. There was nothing that would not have driven our dear doctor mad to have seen. Yet, I recovered. I recovered to lie in bed because of a tiny scratch that one of the jungle folk would scarce realize unless it were upon the end of his nose. But the time was soon over, and before he realized that Tarzan found himself abroad again. Several times the cow had called, and when he found that Tarzan was anxious for employment of some nature, he promised to see what could be done to find a berth for him. It was the first day that Tarzan was permitted to go out that he received a message from Decaud requesting him to call at the Count's office that afternoon. He found Decaud awaiting him with a very pleasant welcome and a sincere congratulation that he was once more upon his feet. Neither had ever mentioned the duel or the cause of it since that morning upon the field of honor. "'I think that I have found just the thing for you, Monsieur Tarzan,' said the Count. "'It is a position of much trust and responsibility.' which also requires considerably physical courage and prowess. I cannot imagine a man better fitted than you, my dear Tarzan, for this very position. 
"'It will necessitate travel, "'and later it may lead to a very much better post, "'possibly in the diplomatic service. "'At first, for a short time only, "'you will be a special agent in the service of the Ministry of War. "'Come, I will take you to the gentleman who will be your chief. "'He can explain the duties better than I, "'and then you will be in a position to judge "'if you wish to accept it or not.' Decoud himself escorted Tarzan to the office of General Rocher, the chief of the bureau to which Tarzan would be attached if he accepted the position. And there the Count left him, after a glowing description to the General of the many attributes possessed by Tarzan which should fit him for the work of the service. A half hour later Tarzan walked out of the office, the possessor of the first position he had ever held. On the morrow he was to return for further instructions although General Rocher had made it quite plain that Tarzan might prepare to leave Paris for an almost indefinite period, possibly on the morrow. It was with feelings of the keenest elation that he hastened home to bear the good news to Darnot. At last he was to be of some value in the world. He was to earn money, and best of all, to travel and see the world. He could scarcely wait to get well inside Darnot's sitting-room before he burst out with the glad tidings. But Darnot was not so pleased. "'It seems to delight you to think that you are to leave Paris, "'and that we shall not see each other for months, perhaps. "'Tarzan, you are a most ungrateful beast.' "'And Darno laughed. "'No, Paul, I'm a little child. "'I have a new toy, and I'm tickled to death.' "'And so it came that on that following day "'Tarzan left Paris en route for Marseille and Oran. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. Hope you're enjoying the story as much as I am. This is a good one. Some recent reviews. We do appreciate reviews, especially from you podcast listeners. So if you have a minute, please do send us a review. It helps other people find our show. This one, great storytelling, five stars. Really enjoying this podcast. I prefer these longer stories. Suggestion. How about 1001 Sci-Fi Stories? That one from Missing 61, Apple Podcast, Canada. And yes, we will keep 1001 sci-fi in mind. The one difficulty we have is that there's not that much in the public domain in science fiction. We do have H.G. Wells and we have some other great writers, but a lot of it came after 1925. And this one, awesome, great stories, excellent narration. That one from Bruce Grimes, Apple Podcast US. Thank you, Bruce. And this one, five stars. Hope he does Animal Farm. I loved his, narr I loved his narration of Call of the Wild. He would do great on Animal Farm. That one from George Lovecraft, Apple Podcast. I wonder if he's any relation to H.P. Lovecraft. And George, I did look at Animal Farm. It is, a, it is a terrific story, but there's a lot of different voices that those animals have. I'm not sure if I'm up for it. <laughs> and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm not sure how much quality I could bring to it. But who knows? We might try it someday anyway. Thank you so much for your reviews. They're appreciated. And it's wonderful knowing we have as many listeners as we do and that you all enjoy the show. Thank you so much. We'll be back. We'll be back with another exciting two chapters next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Everyone, until then, stay safe. And we'll be back soon.
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.